Hello and shalom, shalom. Welcome to Beth Ariel Wednesday Bible study on the book of Deuteronomy. So we're continuing our studies on this important chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, which contains some important information about false prophets and false teachers. There will uh, there will find instructions which will flow actually through the prophets, continuing through the Gospels and the letters of the New Testament to the very end of the Bible, the last chapter, Revelation 22, where the Spirit of God gives a stern warning to those who add or take away anything from the Word of God. Today, Deuteronomy 18 gives us more details and information as to how to evaluate a, a person who brings about a teaching even. It, it gives us the means with which to see if this individual is from God or in opposition to God. And I want to tell you, it's not that complicated. One needs not to be a theologian to assess these new teachings. Deuteronomy, the prophets, the gospels, and the epistles agree on one thing. See the person's life. I remember when I had my business and we, we, we needed to hire new individuals. We used to go through the person's past employments. And among other things, we used to see if the person had a criminal records and so on. But even if the person had a bad past, this did not nullify the possibility of employment. If the person reformed his or her life, we were more than ready to help. However, these are important steps before employing someone. Why don't we do the same today before inviting someone to speak in a congregation or teach or even before we buy a book or read an article? Let us ask a first question. Who is the author and where does he or she comes from? This is what the scriptures puts an emphasis on. Furthermore, this chapter 18 is very strategically placed. It stands at the threshold of, an of the exposition of the law, which begins with chapter 19. It's like a training ground before considering even testing the Word of God. There, from chapter 19, we will see the beauty of the law. In that, we will be, uh, will be brought to consider God's mercy, God's love, His gentleness, and his holiness. Now, before we get into this great book of Deuteronomy, let us first answer a question which has to do with God's holiness and justice. Sharon will read the question for us. Shalom. There are some beautiful verses we read from our Messiah, words of comfort which invite the one who is weak, statements such as, Come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But then, but then we come across what seems to reflect a much sterner and in some instances very offensive tone. I quote from John six fifty four fifty five, which reads, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. What could Yeshua have meant when he said this? What is the message behind these words? That is indeed a very hard saying. And when we encounter such strong statements, we, we know that there is a message, a strong message behind it. Uh, you know, Yeshua knew that these words were very offensive, especially to his audience, the Jewish people. And, and there was here no attempt to soften the impact. 
Yeshua even repeats the words eat my flesh three times in this passage. In fact, five times this concept is repeated in five verses. Consider these verses here in verse 51, for instance. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And so we just read verse 51, 54, 56. There is a clear message here. So offensive, by the way, what was to many that the Bible reports in verse 60 that many just left Jesus. He, there we read, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? For many, it was more than they could take. So, so much so that we read in John 6, 6, 6, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They were disappointed in Jesus. They did not know him this way and see that these were called disciples a disciple is what is a follower a disciple is a learner but these turned away and chose not to learn anymore from jesus and they decided to go back to the old life to the old religion and notice as well that that yeshua makes no attempt to call them back he knew their hearts and instead of explaining his actions and words to his disciples he even goes further it is at this time that he turns to them and asks them in the next verse 67 do you also want to go away did you know jesus to be like this how could people who had witnessed his miracles just decide to get up and leave so the question today is what happened there why did Jesus use such hard words? As we are looking at this passage, it is my prayer that we'll find beyond these words, the grace of God. Because I believe that beyond the harshness of these words lies a message of love that will become apparent to those who love God. Let's go back a little and find out what brought Yeshua to say these things. We are at a point in the Gospels where the many attempts to show the world that he is the Messiah have been almost exhausted. We had the, the, the presentation of all the powerful witnesses just in chapter 5. The Father, the witness of the Father, the witness of the Spirit, the witness of the Scriptures. Uh, then in chapter 6, where we are, we have one of the last attempts to call men to consider who the Messiah is. One of the last attempts before he's crucified. It was not for nothing that chapter 6 is the longest chapter of the gospel. Here the Messiah fed more than 5,000 people by performing, that is performing a great miracle of the multiplication of the bread and fish. It was not a miracle that was done just once, but was repeated more than 5,000 times as the disciple distributed the bread and the fish to all the men, women, and children. It was an, an ongoing miracle of grace, an appeal to draw men to their God as they were spiritually and physically fed. But when man doesn't want to believe, there's nothing that I believe even God can do because he will never force anyone to believe. At the end, it was leading nowhere and the people were not getting what Yeshua was trying to tell them. This is why, as a final attempt, he brings them to an extreme. 
so that they might realize the importance and the seriousness of their condition they were in. At one point in the chapter, it is as if Yeshua says, I've come to you and tried to tell you how much I want you to spend eternity with me. I have come to show show you so many miracles, and he did. Even those miracles they didn't expect him to do, but nothing worked. And it is at this point that Jesus brings his audience down to the reality of their condition by pronouncing some very harsh sayings. He comes to the point of saying to them that they needed to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Offensive, isn't it? But this is what these words were intended to do. The point is that by these words, the mirror is turned the the opposite way to face us so that the unpleasantness, the the, the detestful nature of sin is conveyed to the reader. How else would Jesus tell them? The point is that Yeshua came to die for the offenses, the awful and appalling things that constitute the sins we commit against the Holy God. And now, see who is offended. Yes, we have the witness of the scriptures. Yes, we have the witness of the miracles. But all this is to tell us that as offensive as these words are to us, so offensive are our sins to God. And this is not a new thing or a new concept. The Messiah pronounces here, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Did not God try to convey this idea with every single sacrifice that was offered at the altar in the temple? Day in and day out. By saying these words, the Messiah wanted to bring back the people right in front of the altar of sacrifice at the temple. If one is talking about offenses, this was a real place of offenses, where each animal was cut to pieces and where blood flowed everywhere. This was a place where the priest's garments were were drenched in blood and where the sole of one's shoe were also soaked to the skin from the blood of all these animals. Have we forgotten these offenses? In all these sacrifices, life was being taken in the spilling of the animal's blood. As the Spirit of God says in Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by reason of the life that is in it. In John 6, the point is the same. Yeshua wanted to convey to us the seriousness of our sins and how God sees them. Let us now go to our study of Deuteronomy, which contains again one of those powerful messianic prophecy uh, concerning the first coming of the Messiah. We are, by the way, in page 16 of your handout, section C at the bottom. One more time, you can download the handout at any time from our website, betariel.ca. In the first verse, we are told that the Messiah will arise, who is greater than Moses, and whose words Israel would be required to listen to and obey as we read in verse 19. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Moses, they rarely listened to, but they would not have the luxury of constant rebellion with the Messiah. He is the last link to heaven. But how would we recognize the Messiah? According to Deuteronomy 18, three signs are given to help the Israelites to recognize him. First, he would be of their own 
brethren, that is not a foreigner. He would be from Israel as Yeshua was a Jew. And his ancestry is very well demonstrated in two genealogies in Matthew and Luke, fulfilling the words of God in verse 18, saying, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. Second, he would always speak in Jehovah's name, always speak in accordance, that is, to the scriptures, as Yeshua always did. You know, Jesus did not come to bring a new religion at all, but to bring back the word, the Torah to the people. All that he said and taught was in accordance to the scriptures, not in accordance to the religion of the time. That's why they rejected him. But in accordance to the words of God, thus fulfilling the words of God, in verse 19, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Third, and this is important, all his predictive statements will come true, and all his words are true to the Tanakh. Yeshua did not add or take off or remove anything from the word of God, but he lived and fulfilled every word of God and at the same time gave some powerful prophecies extending those of the ancient prophets of the Bible, thus fulfilling the words of God in verse 22 when he said, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. Except for the first one, the second and third points help us to assess those who come today in and saying that they are the messiahs or saying that they are prophets or saying that they are teachers. These two points will help us to single out the false messiah and this is very relevant for us today. Why today more than any other times? In his prophecies of the end times in Matthew 24, the first thing that Yeshua brings out about what we should expect from the end times is that false messiahs, false prophets, false teachers will increase and the more as we move towards the very end time. Notice how the question the disciple asked, notice the question and see how Jesus answered them in Matthew 24 verses 3 to 4. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. The, the warning here is that individuals will come with powerful and very elaborate arguments, and, and they will appear to know the Bible very well, but their aim would be to replace Yeshua and take over. And, and, and some will prophesy, and when it comes to inspired prophecies, there is no room for one mistake. This is what the Bible says. No less than 100% accuracy is required. If a prophet errs just once, he or she is not from God. That counts for all the prophets, even those in churches who pretend to have this gift. They need to be 100% accurate. Now, reading Deuteronomy 18. It answers a few problems that the departure of Moses will bring, up, bring about. First, as Moses was leaving, let's not forget that, as we mentioned before, that he was 120 years old and ready for his afterlife. And I'm sure he was very happy uh, about this. So uh, after him would come many prophets. And so Deuteronomy 18 tells us or, you know, how to assess these 
prophet or prophetess. Furthermore, notice that before Moses left something, he left actually something with the Israelites. A portion of the word of God was completed, the Mosaic law. Enough for anyone to see or to know God and know his will for man. And along with the many prophets who will come afterwards, like Joshua, Isaiah, Daniel, God did not leave the Israelites orphaned. He left them the word of God. In the same way, when, you know, as when Yeshua left this earth, uh, how was the church able to find out who he is? He left them also the word of God, the New Testament. We have today the 66 books of the scriptures to find out the will of God. So God never left Israel, nor did he ever left the Ecclesia. He is present with us through the word. And again, it was only when the Torah was completed that Moses was taken to heaven. The word was to become to, to them as it is to us, the standard of testing those prophets. Let us read again verses 20 to 22 of Deuteronomy 18, where the Spirit of God gives the following timeless instruction. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Now, this is important. See a first and crucial indication. If what they say does not happen or come to pass, then they are not from God. These words does not come to pass in the Hebrew is one word. It simply means to come, to, to, to come to be true. I believe there are two senses to this word. Here, first, the obvious sense come true, as we have said before, in the sense of prophecy in time. If one prophet makes a false prophecy, he is not from God. And the false prophets are to be examined according to the same criteria. But there is an even stronger sense to the word come in this case. If a prophet gives you a prophecy that pertains to a future time, or let's say 10 years from now, what do you do in the meantime? If there's a way of finding out if, if he's a prophet of God before the time of the prophecy, right? The Bible will tell us. And yes, it tells us. His word, his person, has to come true in relation to the word that God left us. His life has to be in accordance with what is expected of a prophet of God. This is where the answer is. And in the law of the Messiah, that is in the letters of the New Testament, we have a list of requirements to follow to see if a person is from God or just a pretender. Let us consider one of two of these lists of requirements because there are many throughout. For instance, if someone wants to serve the Lord like an elder, or a pastor, or anyone really who wants to be in ministry, the law of the Messiah tells us to look at the life of this person and to look well. The requirements are very thorough and are found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. In these two lists, among others, by the way, in these two lists of qualification, we find 18 important conditions for anyone wanting to speak on behalf of God. 
their lives and styles will confirm their reliability. It is so thorough that anyone reading this list does not want to become an elder or a pastor. It says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, it says, A pastor or an elder must be. And what follows are the 18 qualifications which we can organize in four categories. Of course, we don't have time to go through all of this. But look at the four categories. Personal qualifications, public qualifications, family qualifications, ministry qualifications. And these very demanding requirements were also given for the purpose, I believe, of repelling and, or, and discouraging those who will desire to work for other purposes than to glorify God, because it is a formidable task. So in approaching any other work for the Lord, one has to realize that it is first and foremost God's business. God's business. Man by himself cannot do it. So the starting point is a complete reliance on God and a good standing with God. So there are two tests for those who come and give prophecies, one in time and one according to the teaching and the doctrine of the word. So we today and the Israelites back then are and were completely covered and are completely covered. But there is something else that Deuteronomy tells us. See what it says at the end of verse 22. You shall not be afraid of him. Speaking of the false prophet. I don't know why this word was translated as be afraid here. The Hebrew word is gore is translated 58 times. It means to dwell with that person. What it says, do not dwell or do not have communion with this person have nothing to do with these people. And the Spirit of God repeats this commandment in the law of Christ. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14, we read, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Keep company means to mix up in the sense of social interaction. It is one thing to have interaction with someone who does not believe, who is not a believer, than with one who says that he or she is, lives, uh, he believes and lives in sin and we see no repentance at all. With this, the Bible is very severe. It is. The believers are forbidden to have any communion with this. Another passage, 1 Corinthians 5, 11. We're even commanded not to eat with such a person. This is the same idea that we have in Deuteronomy 18.22. Now, in the first century, by the way, there were much, uh, I mean, the prophecies of Moses, and this particular one was actually known, was very well known, because uh, even at the, at the time they expected the Messiah to come, this we know, Josephus tells us that the people were expecting the Messiah according to the prophecy that we have in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. And so we read in John, for instance, chapter 1, verses 25, 21 and 25, that they, they thought that John the Baptist might have been the prophet himself, the prophet that Moses spoke. And we, there we read, he says, and they ask him, uh, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? The prophet that Moses spoke about. He says, no, I'm not. And later, some recognized in Yeshua that he was the prophet himself, as in John 7:40, where the miracle of the multiplication of breads, we read, 
Then those men, when they had seen the signs that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come in the world. And others concluded the same thing. So the people of the time had all the information they needed to recognize the Messiah and had the testimony of the word and the many messianic prophecies. And this information, by the way, is available today. It is still in the scriptures. But as it was prophesied, it was not enough. The religious leaders did not accept Yeshua. Today they're still looking for the prophet, for the Messiah. But it is Yeshua HaMashiach. Now it is now that we move into the next chapter, chapter 19. We have enough time for introduction. Chapter 19 to 26 speak of our relationship with each other. Uh, Reaching this chapter 19 is like moving from uh, the first part of the commandments, which speaks of our relationship with God, to the second part of the Ten Commandments, which deal with our relationship with each other. We can actually sum up this chapter 19 to 26 with the words that we find in Galatians 5.14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That means that, and this is also important, it means that a proper understanding of God's law will bring the individual to love his neighbor as himself and to attach great worth to him or her. Any application of the law without this great principle will make the law harsh, it will make it legalistic and hard to comprehend. The last six commandments are brought out in this whole section of the scriptures. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And this section in Deuteronomy 19 deals mainly in quagistic way, that is in case laws, case laws. For today's readers, many of the laws contained in there might appear at first irrelevant. But it is the very principle behind these laws that help us to, uh, our lawmakers to formulate the laws we now live under. It is these very laws that brought dignity to men. And if God does, does not present this second set of laws in an apodictic way, that is in a very systematic way, like the first, second, third law, and so on, in a similar way that the Ten Commandments were given, it is, I believe, because the reader is here invited to come and sit next to the judge and examine the case with him. And this is what we'll be doing next time we meet, for this is the only time we have. And so I'm very excited to meet again in order to go through these laws and to see the goodness of God. May you be blessed. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.
Don't lie.